0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Patreon, where creators can build a more sustainable income source by giving their fans monthly access to exclusive community, premium content, and the chance to become active participants in the work they love. Check out Patreon.com now.
1: For NPR Music, you're connected to all songs considered. I'm Bob Boylan. I'm going to take you back 50 years to a basement outside Woodstock, New York, to the formation of a sound and an album that all these years later still shapes the musical landscape. The album is music from Big Pink, and the band is simply called The Band. Their generic name came from the fact that, for a while, they were a backing band playing behind the rollicking rockabilly artist known as Rodney Hawkins.
0: Hey! They're just the same Treat me mean Treat me
1: cruel Treat me just like I was a fool Yes, I was a fool Hey, Boba Lou These Canadians, Robbie Robertson, Garth Hudson, Richard Manuel, and the kid from Arkansas, Levon Helm, were known Let as the Hawks. leave me here all alone To sit and cry on my own Yes, I In 1965 and 66, they got work backing Bob Dylan on his world tour, often booed by fans thinking of Dylan as a traitor with his new electric sound. Electric music was the sign of commercialism in those days and the antithesis of the folk world for his long folk fans. After the tour, Bob Dylan had a motorcycle accident in upstate New York, and he and his band found refuge in the basement of a home in West Saugerties, New York. That house, with its salmon pink siding, became known as Big Pink. Dylan and his band recorded 100-plus songs in that basement, recordings often bootlegged and later released and known yeah, as the boy. Basement Tapes.
0: But when Gwyn the Eskimo gets here, everybody jump for joy.
1: When Bob Dylan wasn't around, the band began to flesh out their own sound in Big Pink. They made a demo and in 1968 went to a studio in New York City and later studios in Los Angeles and recorded that first album, Music from Big Pink. That record turned 50 at the end of July, and a 50th anniversary collection will come out with new mixes, including a 5.1 mix and so much more. I call attention to this record because many of us think that this album is a building block to a genre these days we call Americana. It's a blend of rock and country whose roots go back to that basement. Robbie Robertson was in the band, and in that basement... Today, he's in a studio in Los Angeles, and I'm at NPR in Washington, D.C. I start my conversation with Robbie Robertson by asking him to take us down to that basement.
0: If you walk down the stairs at this house that we called Big Pink, and we were all down there set up in the way that we would make music there— It was very unimpressive visually. There was like a furnace. It was like a cellar, any cellar. See, it was a big dream of mine to have a place like this, to have a workshop, a clubhouse, a creative space. And we finally got this, and we got this basement, and we set up the equipment that we had. And some of it was the equipment from the tour with Bob Dylan. And we got like a little tape recorder and a a mini mixer and all that. And I was very proud Mm -hmm. that we put this together. And it was mainly Garth Hudson and myself. That were figuring out the details of the setup there. And I thought, wow, my dream has come true. <laughs> and there was a, an engineer, friend of ours, you know, that mixed live music and, re, you know, recording studio engineer and everything. So I was so proud of it. I said, take a look at what we've put together here. <laughs> and he looks at it and he says, oh, this is going to sound terrible. <laughs> He said, this is the worst circumstance I've ever seen for making music. Whatever you do in here, it's really going to sound bad. And I thought, what? Did you just completely rain on my parade? And then I took a different attitude towards it. I thought, okay, now this makes me really want to do something special here. And we ended up overcoming those obstacles to a degree and obviously made the famous basement tapes there and did all the preparation that we would do for making music from Big Pink.
1: And when you listen to one another, you're in this room and there's drums and everything, was there a PA, like how did you hear each other's voices? I'm imagining more of an Because of the setup, that it's more intimate. And did it help you work together, work closer together?
0: It did. There was something about this setup and the circle that we sat in and how we could communicate musically with one another because a lot of it, you didn't know what was going to happen next. And so you really had to be in tune with one another. And there was a couple of like guitar amp speakers there that we could use and the and the vocals would come out of that. But a, a lot of it had to do too with just playing at a volume that everybody could hear one another distinctly. And if you were playing too loud, everybody would look at you like you're playing too loud and you would adjust. And this was a throwback. Something about when we were playing all over the Chitlin circuit and places, you know, that we played down south, and hearing these people play music, and you heard those records, and you thought, wow, they're just blasting on those records. It's so powerful. And when you would see them in person, you realized they weren't playing loud at all. It was just being recorded, and when it was mixed right, it sounded so powerful and so strong. And so we were absorbing that, and because of the setup and because of all the cement in the basement and everything, and the furnace and everything, it was all these (laughs) hard surfaces, we learned to adjust to that, and it helped develop and make for a, a particular sound that was our new sound this was the sanctuary Mm. this was the place that we were going to be making the music that we were going to send out to the world having been together for quite a while before making our first album
1: and then you take this to new york city a studio uh, to record the music you had demoed and As any engineer would, I'm going to explain something to people who've never been in a studio or don't understand the mindset of engineers. The first thing an engineer likes to do is have control over things so that they might separate the drums from the voice and throw the drums in a room or behind a bunch of baffles or... Uh, just to isolate the voice so when they go to mix the voice all they're playing with is the sound of the voice that they're all in the same room then you hear the drums and the bass they call leakage and so they set you up in that sort of situation in the studio in New York how'd that work out
0: well this studio A&R Studios it was known to have the best sound of any studio around and we were honored to be able to be there, and the legacy of this place, now Phil Ramone, the famous engineer, had taken over this place, but it was the old CBS Columbia Studios on top of Columbia Records, where so many great records were made, and Phil Ramone had taken it and really made it tremendously better. So when you walked into this place, it was like walking into a holy place. That everything was what it was because it was so special. And we just did what they said. They said, "Okay, you're going to set up over here. You'll be over there. This is how we do it here." You know, they were like, "This is how how we make records sound this great." So we were like, "Well, we want our record mm-hmm. to sound great." <laughs> and so we did exactly what they said and it felt awkward but we were on somebody else's turf here and we thought we have to adapt to that and we started playing the first song we were going to record and we didn't even get halfway through it and i stopped and and said this doesn't work this is no good we can't play music like this
1: and like this Um, just to i would just wonder be a little more specific because we talked about baffles. We talked about so, from your vantage point, you couldn't see everyone. You couldn't eye contact, right? That's what we're talking about. When you say it, yeah. this doesn't work, are you are you wearing headphones to hear everyone and all
0: that? Right. It's quite different so, than the basement, right? Where it's your eye contact. Well, it's proximity. quite different from, e- from everything right. that we situations. had ever done right. ever. Right. So, and this particular music that we are now discovering, presenting, and everything, so that we're all set up, we can't see one another. We are communicating through microphones and headphones. So I said, this doesn't work. We have to set up in a circle so we can see one another, so we can communicate musically. That's how we play music. And it was like that whether we were playing live, whether we were playing anything, and that's all we had been doing for Seven years before this time came. That's how long we had we had been together. So anyway, so the engineers were like, "Oh God, whatever." You know, they, they you know <laughs> they didn't want to hear this. And John Simon, our producer, he was so helpful in this. And he said to the engineers, who were great engineers too and well known for how good they were. He said, we've got to do the best we can to allow them to make the music. They make some very interesting music and we have to figure this out. So we set up the way we wanted to. We got rid of the baffles. We set up in a circle. We could see one another and these engineers were saying, this is going to sound terrible, horrible. It's going to be just nothing but leakage and we'll have no control over it and you came here to you know for it to sound good and it's not going to sound good so john asked them about a certain microphone an electrovoice RE15 I remember because it was, it was such a significant moment in all of this. And John said, "Let's put those microphones cuz they had lots of them. They were cheap microphones in studios. He said, "Let's put those microphones cuz they don't pick up anything besides what's right in front of them. And let's put them on everything." Hmm. And they were like, "What? You want to <laughs> you want to put those microphones on drums? You want people to do their vocals into those microphones it's going to sound terrible he said we got to try so they set up all the microphones we played a little bit and they got levels on everything and we started playing we come back and we're starting to play the first song again and what was that song by the way it was uh, tears of rage Uh it was a song that richard Manuel and bob dylan had written and it was a an odd song to be, to start recording, but we didn't realize that at the time, because it's a long, slow song. And so, anyway, we started playing Tears of Rage, and John comes over to the intercom, and he says, this is coming together, it's it's not so bad, and the engineer at this point, saying, yeah, it's, you know, it's not great, but it, you know. So anyway, John says, we're going to record this now because I think you should hear you know where we're going with this and see what... So anyway, we play down the song. We go in and listen. And we stand in front of those speakers in a and studio. Mm-hmm. And it is the first time we hear the sound of the band. This is the way we sound like. And it was like, that's it? We were all like, okay and with that we were able to make the adjustments that we wanted to make and and we were gonna then go out and record it for real and we went out and we played the song again and John said we got it that's it it was the first song we recorded tears of rage and it was the first song on the album, Music From Big Pink, because it was the first song we recorded. And the record company said, you really wanna start your record with a long, slow song? And I said, what's wrong with that? (laughs) And that's what exactly how it ended up coming out. There are a couple of things that made you, made me
1: think of when you just told that story. And one of them is simply like, you know, you described hearing yourself for the first time, it was the band, as you say, but what did emotionally, other than kind of a hallelujah moment, I'd imagine, like was it like something you'd ever heard before? You guys were when I I'm holding the record that I got in my hand uh, from that mm-hmm. era. It was like nothing else for me as a teenager. For you, as musicians, you're in your late twenties, early thirties. You'd listen to lots of music. You have a lefty for Zell. Cut on this record, you know, a place and time. Lots of rock and country didn't intersect a lot in those days, or we were just beginning to. What did it
0: sound like to you? Did it sound like anyone else? Did it. I didn't think of it so much as comparing it to anything. I thought about it as of all of the music that we had been gathering and that we had absorbed and had influenced us over all of those years of playing you know honky-tonks and places all over the south and all the way up to Canada and all those musicalities were stirred up in this gumbo and when we went in and heard that I felt like that's what that sounds like Mm -hmm. that's what it sounds like when you've been doing this a while that there is a depth to it that there is experience and that there is you know all this workmanship and everything in a musicality it sounded so authentic and true to who we really were and what we had been through it was a complete feeling of satisfaction that's
1: so amazing because that's so not the experience that most people have their first time in a studio. It is like this foreign thing and everything about it is uncomfortable and different as it was when you first walked in and experienced You know, separate places to play and couldn't see your friends. But you took control of and with the help of John Simon took control of it.
0: I pulled into Nazareth Was feeling Half I just need some place
1: And all he said Take load You put the load,
0: put right, the on load right on, me. Right
1: on me. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. I'm talking to Robbie Robertson of the band and the 50th anniversary of music from band. Big Pink. I'm Bob Boylan, and you're listening to All Songs Considered from NPR Music.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Lagunitas Brewing Company. Founder Tony McGee says that learning to brew craft beer took inspired amateurism. It's like punk music. They just picked things up, and they said, if I can make this thing make noise, I can do it in rhythm, and people will dance, and we will fill up rooms with people angry as we are. And so it was with craft brewing. To discover how music plays a part in more than just great beer at Lagunitas, visit lagunitas.com music. Support also comes from Masterclass, offering online classes taught by masters of their craft. Each class is shot with cinematic production quality and offers on-demand lessons loaded with exclusive content. Listeners can learn about photography from Annie Leibovitz, writing from Malcolm Gladwell, music production from Armin Van Buren, and a whole lot more. For a limited time, All Songs Considered listeners get a free seven-day trial when they sign up at masterclass.com slash allsongs.
1: I'm Bob Boylan with All Songs Considered. We're talking to Robbie Robertson today of the band. We're talking about the 50th anniversary collection that's coming out in August. I want to bring you to the present and play for you a little thing. I've just put together Tears of Rage, the older version and the newer version, the remix. So... You go back to remix these, and I want you to uh, tell me a little bit about the remixing, what your part of the process, what, what your involvement was in this process uh, first, and then I'm going to play a little A-B comparison, and you can then talk about uh, what it was uh, that you got out of remixing something that has mm-hmm. been in amber for, you know, 50 years. So tell me about the remix,
0: why do it, and what were you after? When the record company said it's gonna be the anniversary of music from Big Pink, and we're gonna do this special collection of it, and and all of the things, you know, it was so respectful of the way that they were talking about this. And they said, who, you know, like on the Beatles thing, they got George Martin's son, Mm To remix Sgt. Pepper and who would you like to do this? And I've worked quite a bit over the years with Bob Clearmountain and I know how much he had revered this record. You know, I couldn't imagine anybody else uh, besides him doing this. So we asked him to do it. Recording back then, this album was made on four tracks. Now we record on 100 tracks, (laughs) right? But on four tracks, you have to make some very deliberate decisions on what works, and you have to record it that way. You have to commit to how much of this you're using, how much of that you're using, what you're combining on tracks, because it's that way forever. So Bob took this, the limitations of having stuff on four track, which was the same with Sergeant Pepper, what he did was take us deeper into the sonic experience of that because it used to feel to me like you could sit back and that sound would come out of the speakers and you could appreciate it you could like it it could be a flavor that works for you or whatever now with what he did and in the process he would do a mix send it to me I'd, I'd have comments, we'd go back and forth until we got to the place where it really felt like you were sitting in the room mm. with these guys while they played this music, and it just wrapped around you.
1: That's beautiful. So I'm going to do this. Uh, I'll play a bit of Tears of Rage within the first minute and a half. I'll go back and forth between old and new, and I'm going to start with old. And uh, I'll leave your mic open, but but let's give people a chance to adjust and listen and then we'll talk more when it stops. Listen to the placement of the voice here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, there's there is a depth on the on the new mixes of this. Um, and I can hear it so clearly. and the vocal, hmm. the vocal is right where it should be now. And because it was on other tracks, you know, I mean, with other instruments, It isn't like you could just turn up the vocal or turn down the vocal. It had to be done in a way. And back then too, when you would make a record and they would mix the record and master the record, you could not get too much depth and bottom on on vinyl because it would make the needle skip on the record. So now, without those limitations. And they're doing this record on vinyl, but at 45 RPM instead of 33. So they are able to have more of a richness and it will all be very much aligned with itself to give this depth and, you know, that's what it really feels like to me. I feel like there's so much more above and there's so much more below. And what's happening right in the middle with the vocal and everything is right in front of you. You can, I don't know, I can see it. I can see it and part of the music of the, the band over the years was for me, when I knew that we had the right take on something, was when I could see it.
1: That's really beautiful. Well, you must be really proud. Thank you for uh, taking time to talk about this today. This is great, Bob. appreciate it a lot. I hope to meet you one day. All right. Let's do that. Cheers. Robbie Robertson of the band, talking about the 50th anniversary of music from Big Pink. Robertson and Garth Hudson are the only survivors of the band. Richard Manuel committed suicide in 1986 at the age of 42. Rick Danko died of heart failure in 1999 at age 56. Levon Helm died due to complications from throat cancer at age 71 back in 2012. Music from Big Pink gets its grand reissue on August 31st. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's all songs considered.